0: From Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Grammy-nominated producer, engineer, and musician, Joel Hamilton. But first of all, Bandcamp came out with a series of very interesting stats for last year. And every single one of these stats just kind of blew my mind a little bit. So the biggest one is... Just on Bandcamp alone, there were 17,872 cassette albums released last year, which was about 50 a day. Pretty amazing. 17,872. Who would have thought? So it looks like cassettes are really a big thing for bands now, and we all knew they were, but maybe not to this extent. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. First of all, cassettes are cheap. And they're really fast to duplicate. So it makes sense. They're cheap to buy. They're very cheap to sell. And let's face it, they have a sound that a lot of people like. It's analog after all. The other thing that was really interesting, Bandcamp saw 182,000 new active bands signed up just in the last year. 182,000 bands. All statistics basically tell us that the whole band scene is declining pretty badly, but Bandcamp goes against that. Now, what was <laughs> even more interesting here, though, was the names that people chose for their bands. There were 77 bands that chose the name Atlas. There were 13 that chose the name Apollo. There were 10 that chose the name Grimm. There were nine that chose the name Bloom or Indigo or Nova. And eight either used King or Void. Seven used Milk. Six used the name David. And five used the name Smith. Now, if I were starting a band, I would do a search to find out if there were any bands with those names before I chose them. (laughs) So when you figure that there were 77 bands named Atlas just On Bandcamp alone, it makes you wonder how many bands out there have that name. Now, we can go another step here. Album titles, just on Bandcamp. There were 130 last year with the name Home. So again, you would think before you would release an album, you would research a little bit and find out what the title is. But apparently, (laughs) there are 130 named Home. 71 were named either Lost or Memories or Void, or Waves. Again, it kind of blows my mind. 70 releases were called Reflections. 64 releases were called Blue. 62 were called Dreams. 58 were called Bloom. And 54 were called Love. So once more, blows my mind, you would think before you name an album, you do some research and see what the competition is, because I wouldn't want 129 other releases with the same name as my release. And this is just on Bandcamp, let alone all the other bands that are out there naming, all the other artists that are out there naming their albums and who knows how many homes there are. The other thing that was interesting is the one-word titles. And it seems like that's a really big trend. So all I can say is before you name your band... Before you name your album, do a little research to see what the competition is doing or to see how many other people are using, or other bands are using, the same titles. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at com. Please check out my award-winning music industry blog at music3.0.com and my award-winning music production blog at bobbyosinskiblog.com. You can also check out my online courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com and also lynda.com. Now, the other big news is that SSL was just purchased. It was owned by Peter Gabriel for the last 10 years, but it was sold to the Audiotronics Group Audiotronics already owns console companies, Digico, Digigrid, Calrec, and Allen & Heath. So this kind of fits right in with their product mix already. Peter also turned around and invested some of the money that he got into Audiotronics. Now, I did a little research and found out that last year was actually a record sales year for SSL. It's not that they were floundering. They actually did very well. Peter felt apparently that he couldn't grow it anymore and needed some help. And the best way to do that was actually find a company like Audiotronics that has a lot more marketing muscle. So it turns out that SSL is actually adding more techs and they're selling quite a lot. There was a post on Facebook from LA tech, Phil Scholes, who said that he actually installed two dualities last month and he was one of a dozen techs that were doing so. So, Someone is buying these. Now, the interesting thing here is the fact that when you look around, you think that large format consoles are kind of over. You don't really need one in most recording cases because most people have plenty of outboard gear these days. They have outboard signal paths, lots of Neve preamps, lots of whatever preamps you want are available, and most people have them. So you go into just about any studio, you find that, wow, a lot of the inputs are using preamps, and signal paths that aren't on the console anyway. Now, of course, if you're recording really big bands or orchestras or something like that, or doing broadcast, there's a lot of inputs that you need, and it certainly makes sense in those situations. Now, the other thing, though, with large format consoles and music is the fact that if you go to a lot of the biggest commercial studios, you find that the sessions that they're doing, by and large, are only using four or six channels out of, like, a 80-channel console. And that's because, of course, they're pop or they're hip-hop, and most of that stuff is done in the box. Then we get to mixing, of course, and just about everybody's in the box for mixing these days because the instant recall is so important. Anybody that's tried to recall a session on a console knows that it will take you half a day to put it back to the way it was before, And chances are, something's going to sound different anyway. So we really love the fact that in the box, you can just recall it. It's back in a second. You can make your changes, and it's done. So that's why everything has gone that way for the most part. But you don't need a console for that. So when you look at it, you would think that the day of the large format console is over. But yet, these things keep on selling. And if you talk to API, for instance, they're doing really well at their large format consoles. And we see new companies coming out Audio Techniques, for instance, the old company from the 70s that made consoles are bringing back the consoles again. So we're finding new people coming into the market and new consoles coming into the market and the old brands are still alive and and well, apparently. So if someone tells you that consoles are over, someone like me, who's been claiming that on my blog and on this podcast for a while, it looks like that's not the case at all. My guest today is Joel Hamilton, who's a four-time Grammy-nominated producer, engineer, and musician whose credits include The Black Keys, Iggy Pop, Elvis Costello, and Pretty Lights, among many others. He's a part owner of Studio G Brooklyn and a frequent speaker at conferences all over the world. I spoke with him via Skype from a studio in Brooklyn. Let's go from the beginning. How did you get into this business? You were a musician, I assume, so what was the beginnings?
1: I started out my dad was actually a drummer in a band that, not of note, but just sort of in a band with my uncle. And uh, the the we we were the band house. So there was a set of drums. There was a Fender Twin. You know, there was a three thirty five Portaflex, a Rhodes. You know, there was all this stuff. And uh, and so before they would get off work and I would get home from school, I had this two and a half hour window, in you know, in grade school where I could fuck with everything. <laughs> And and then put the you know the knobs back to where they were for fear of being murdered, and uh, and basically you know that that really that started my love of the gear side of things actually more than anything I would say it's it, it's my my grandfather was actually someone who he was a part of the team at MIT that developed the Klystron tube which is wow. uh, which, which facilitated TV broadcast. Um, and so my dad that was instilled in him. Same with me. There was sort of a, a broadcast background. My great grandmother was the first woman to have a syndicated radio show in the world. Wow. Um so it was like so was sort of broadcast and microphones and things were kicking around in the house. And and I didn't really care about the gear so much. I wanted to, you know, play guitar or drums or whatever in a rock band or something when I was a kid kid. And then there was some recording gear left around, uh, it was probably a 38, I don't remember, but I think in retrospect it was a quarter inch, you know, four or eight track. Um, and uh, and once I figured that thing out in, in about fourth grade, after using just like little, you know, uh, consumer two track stuff and splicing... Things just for fun, like making mega mixes, where it'd be like you know the Beatles into the Police or whatever, and I'd cut off the downbeat and it would go into the next song. Um, after that type of thing, figuring out a little multi-track thing, um, again while my dad and the uncle weren't home, it was like I I was bit you know I I was bit by that bug and and the sort of tech side of it was built in. I mean those were the discussions at Thanksgiving with a grandfather who worked at Lincoln Labs and a dad. You know that was a gearhead as well in a million different ways, sort of automotive, all kinds of stuff, electronics. And um, I liked the 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 crossroads, that sort of rendezvous of technology and art. So creative thinking and then pursuing it with whatever tool was that was available to me.
0: What's interesting is you started so young. I mean, most of us get the bug when, you know, we're, we're a little bit older, I think. But uh, wow, if you're doing splicing in fourth grade, <laughs> that's advanced stuff.
1: I would <laughs> I would make my little sister, I have one younger sister, I'd make my little sister read these uh, these kind of really corny little, you know, kind of fake radio show. So my dad had all these fire sign theater records and oh. things like that, or like Monty Python records and things like that. And so we would do these sort of silly little comedy records but then i would cut them and long before that sort of kitchen magnet poetry thing came out i would write with a marker on the chunk of tape what word my sister had said and i would sort of cut it back together so that she would say something incriminating like i would have her her name was libby her name's libby and she would say you know my name's libby and i think unicorn farts are terrible but i like flowers and of course I would cut it. So she says, my name's Libby and I like unicorn farts. And I would think that was hilarious at 10 years old. <laughs> it's hilarious <But> now. Little <laughs> did I know I was actually <laughs> i was still <laughs> laughing about it. But but the thing is, little did I know I'd then, you know, be cutting it on a on an A twenty seven, you know, forty years later or whatever, I'd be cutting things on my A twenty seven and and actually applying those silly techniques. In my brain, it was silly. At the time, and then realizing that I, you know, I already had experience as to where to cut the S versus where I could cut something more like a K sound or a T sound and make it work properly and sound more natural, with the goal being that it actually sounded like my sister loved unicorn parts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so, so st- I'm still I'm still cutting unicorn parts <laughs> in the studio.
0: <laughs> so you started really really young. When did you get serious about it?
1: I think really I started to hear deficiencies in in my own recordings. I started to have the ability to hear what was lacking compared to the, you know, police record I was listening to or something, and so it, it, that started the pursuit of subjectively better and more professional results. And and it, that's still pre-internet. Um, you know, in my late teens, early twenties, it's still way pre-internet happening, and so we're or At least average human having internet, and so you know i i didn't I couldn't just ask the the hive mind via gear sluts or the tape op message board you know I had to start figuring out for myself like okay, I should get a better mic mm. <laughs> or I should get you know like I yeah and you start doing that cyclical thing where you reveal the weakest link in your chain you know so it's like the I couldn't afford a two inch machine so i got you know a quarter inch eight track and one that would run at 15 ips and i thought it was amazing and then that would reveal that the the microphones were weren't up to snuff that would then reveal the next thing in the chain and i'm on and around until now i'm sitting in a room with a ton of gear and an ssl in the a room and a neve in the b room and a neotech in the c room you know this is whatever 30 years later um So I would say the first, but but that led to, sorry, in in more nuts and bolts, that led to the first record that I ever did coming out was 95 or 96. Some, you know, like these punk rock seven inches, you know, 45s type of thing is what I was doing with the eight track. Um, And then I finally put together more of a pro studio. Um, it, It always went hand in hand with my goals and vision for what i was trying to achieve and therefore it wasn't just like me going to avatar or at that point power station and and just getting a couple days and tracking there for whatever reason it was always sort of intrinsically tied to the size band i was in and the sort of hardcore and punk scene i was in it was you know they didn't have the dough to go to avatar so it was dependent on what i had in my basement studio at the time was what i was working on really so that was that was about it. I think that was the the real record started to come out based on on me just getting to a level where I could even kind of trick the listener into thinking it was a real recording you know,
0: but of course, having gear is one thing, but knowing how to use it is another thing. so was this all experiential, or did you have a mentor when it comes to recording or mixing or any of that uh
1: I th- think. In this, uh, mentors in the sense that it was indirect just like my favorite writers have read the most books I sort of sat down and really listened to what made the song tick like why does sissy strut by the meters like why does the pumping compression on the drums add to the groove versus not being able to really hear any compression on the drums on every breath you take or whatever other thing was on the radio at the time. Um, and what the hell is that snare on the Prince record and then learning about the Lindrum because I didn't have anybody to ask about this shit in those years, you know? And so finally I started, you know, reading mix and getting doing all the things we did pre-internet to start getting more information. But for sure, I think, I think what's important is that I, I felt as though I maxed out a particular piece of gear before I got the next one, not just out of financial necessity, but because... I, I couldn't hear the limitation until I could and then I did everything I could to move to the next level you know you sort of plateau in your you know there's all these plateaus I guess in in the way you process the information same ears same everything but experience starts to let you know that the snare can do this or you you should be able to get the kick to do that in the mix or whatever it is yeah yeah yeah
0: okay What do you consider your big break, or did you have one? And for a lot of people, they have one break that kind of catapults them in their career, and other people, it's just a slow progression. So which was it for you?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think it's hard to ask the person that it happened to, (laughs) meaning like I, I can't pin it on any single thing because I'm too interested in too many styles. So I didn't just try to have a hit for 10 years and flounder around in the underground. And then finally that one caught fire. And then I was the guy. It wasn't like that. It was like, I'm I'm doing, you know, a co-write with Tom Waits while I'm doing programming and drumming for Elvis Costello up at avatar for a thing, for a TV show that show house on Fox. It was like, those type of things just sort of became the foundation on a resume that allowed me to then get to the Grammys. You know, I, I, so I, I, I guess it would be a two stage rocket there, you know, as far as like laying the foundation that there was enough on my resume that people said, okay, Tom Waits trusted this guy with X, Y, and Z, you know, these people, if I had to pin it though, it would be on the record, this, this thing called sparkle horse, that I did in 2000 2001 I guess it was 2000 we were tracking it it came out in 2001 called it's a wonderful life and uh, and I did the tracking for that and uh, and me and the primary songwriter guy who's not around anymore we really hit it off and had a very a really deep sort of creative synchronicity happening where all the things that I had ever done because I didn't know what an 808 was originally. And I was trying to do things like, you know, hold a contact mic up against the butter knife on the table and slide it until it was the right note and make an 808 sounding thing. Because I just literally kind of allowed myself the freedom to figure out how to make these sounds without the internet. I mean, yet again, I allowed myself the experimental process, maybe because of the family I came from it was like, okay, I'm going to fail my way through 50 things and then figure out one that's really cool um and mark wound up really enjoying that like the ability to understand what a contact mic on a butter knife on the edge of the table sounds like sort of led to the ability to mic some (laughs) non-traditional setups we'll say and uh And that one sort of opened me up to the notion that that could be done on Capitol Records. I think that's why it was such a breakthrough. Maybe not for me in the sense that the Capitol gave me the break, but that it kind of opened up my heart coming from the underground. Like, wow, there's some creative shit that can happen that is well-funded if the songwriting is there and then a bunch of other variables kind of fall into place. An A&R guy with some vision... You know what I mean? Like all the things that we all know make a great record. And that one sort of became a classic that I'm really proud of. And people still ask me about vocal sounds and things that we did on that record to this day. And um, that maybe maybe opened up my brain to an idea that we can get a real level of quality happening with non-traditional methods.
0: That's outside the box thinking because most people would go the other way where they'd stay as traditional as possible, but kind of move up quality-wise. But you didn't do that, and I think that's cool because actually you're, again, more experimental at that point. You're more willing to think outside the box, where I know, for me, I'm such a traditionalist, it's difficult to think like that, and I'd always have to kick myself instead of saying, no, that's not the way it's done, going, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we got to try that. But it seems natural to you to, to just do that right off.
1: It was it was more about uh, not thinking of it in terms of going outside the lines, not knowing where the lines were to begin with. And then I would fill in this fundamental knowledge like, Wow, yeah, a pair of four fourteens or eighty sevens up above the kit, sure does make it easy to get my imaging right. <laughs> you
0: know.
1: Said all this bullshit I've been doing forever. So it was it was almost like I I landed on that you know, on planet normal and was like I could finally breathe after all these years of like fumbling in the dark through things and and there was there was just a lot of information there like i say you know you got to do a lot of digging before you hit gold and i I had a lot of dirt piles of dirt in the backyard (laughs) before i actually found any nuggets that were worth anything but at the same time you know i mean that's i did get to things of value eventually um and then filling in the fundamentals later it was like you know finding myself doing things with people who did want it a bit straighter it was it was super cool to then it it felt interesting to do the normal drum setup <laughs> you know what I mean? it was like wow this looks like a picture in mix man <laughs>
0: but see that's what's so cool most people again will take the traditional way and then they'll kind of go vary from there after they've discovered what that i shouldn't say traditional the industry expectations are and you went the other way and that's what's so cool because again you fill in the blanks you you go outside and then you fill in the blanks and to me that makes a lot more sense to do it that way but that's not the way it happens normally
1: yeah i mean i didn't have the benefit of a a direct mentor and so it was kind of listening to something that was engineered by someone who did yeah. you know what i mean somebody yeah. who was 29 or 40 years older i had no idea what they were but had been doing it for a lot more years than me i was listening to their handiwork when it was like alan toussaint producing and blah blah blah, blah and i'm listening to a meters record and i'm like wow this is kind of fucked up sounding but in a great way but they're pro so i guess that's right
0: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah right no i hear you
1: <laughs> like there's there's records like we can find examples of really fucked up sounding things you know made by professionals and those were my examples and randomly I wound up in the room in a very creative major label session what's now you know 18 years ago and and finding myself going wow okay this is how those records were made you know which was wrong but I started to go okay wow it was like everybody being super creative rather than just sort of dealing with the limitations of a mono machine or whatever else you know whatever the reasons were I I was about to go, uh, at one point I was about to go do a session at Shangri-La, this is like five years ago, Rick Rubin's place now, yep. but Shangri-La, like, you know, the band, and Jim Scott happened to be in my B room at the time, you know, and he said, Joel, because I'd look up to him like crazy, who wouldn't? Sure, man? yeah. And, and he's, he was he was like, Joel, I'll tell you, man, Shangri-La is never known for its sonic excellence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said but i'll tell you what man he's like every great record you and i love was made by guys just like you and i dealing with that fact and i was like man that is so fucking real right there and that really stuck with me heavily you know and getting getting to engineer around people like tio Macero at one point i got to work in rooms with guys like that that were like it's it's like that all of a sudden i felt vindicated by this sort of spirit of exploration but within acceptable kind of parameters that the person funding it would put up with yeah you know so it's like do it efficiently and that that made me come up with the notion that if i do the sort of standard setup on the drums what we're calling the traditional method in this interview it's like doing that and then throwing an re 11 behind the piano that old trick you know or whatever like dropping a mic somewhere stupid or in the snare case or you know whatever it is like something like kind of dumb and weird and distorting it to tape or doing that it's like at that point we have a school bus that's going to jump the canyon right and we're going to film it from 22 angles but then we're going to take a look at what the most compelling angles are during any given point in the story like do we want to establish the speed the thing's going at the ramp then let's show the quick one where it just zips by, that, you know, because yeah, yeah. it's shooting the wheel. And then we'll get the long shot when it actually hits the edge and it looks like it's floating in space. I mean, this this to me became the kind of multi-camera shoot that I could include my freaky ideas in, and they wouldn't necessarily make it on the record, and nor would I have any resentment about that. It's like, let's include this, and maybe I can work some of my my crazy ideas around the edges, even on these bigger records that are geared for the radio, you know, and and ultimately feeling vindicated when you go to the Grammys on something that you worked in a lot of those weirdo shots when the school bus jumped. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. You know,
0: I've had uh, similar vindicating moments. If I'm producing something, I usually bring in a tracking engineer to track. I and I'll do it myself if the budget demands it, but I, you know, I feel I can just do a better job. And usually sure. it'll be a heavy hitter if I can afford it. And what tends to happen is I'll look at them and I'll think, oh yeah, okay. That's the way I would have done it. Okay. Yeah. Check that one off. Yeah. Okay. Vindication. Exactly, vindication. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. And and yeah. one I had Ken Scott on. So he's coming in with the Abbey Road influence, you know, sure. Beatles yeah. and Bowie and Supertramp. And that was the big one. The only thing that he did that I never would have done and most engineers wouldn't do, he put a C12 on the base amp. Yes, right. And he looked at me and he says, "This is what I used on Paul." I thought, "Oh, okay. Well, I guess it's it'll sound okay then." Yeah.
1: (laughs) Like okay, all right. Yeah, right, right, right. We'll
0: go with it. Let's talk about your studio. I've looked at the specs, and you got three interesting, unique rooms that are different, but are voice different. Let's put it like that. From what (laughs) I can tell. That's well put. And. I also looked at your equipment list, which is awesome, but a couple things really jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Many studios, many players, producers have great guitar collections, and that's kind of common, but you have a great amp and keyboard collection and a bass collection. I looked at that, and I thought, wow, yeah, that's yeah. unusual. So how did that come mm-hmm. about?
1: My partner of 19 years, my business partner of 19 years, was the bass player in a band called Perubu. Oh, of course. He was bass player, and they might giants he was in jeff buckley's band he was played for lucinda williams you know he's played with everybody like with uh charles from pixies you know he's in the catholics frank black and the catholics like he's in a, a gajillion bands played with everybody and uh and he just kind of bought bases i mean the first Ubu record was 77 and uh and so in 77 a 62 jazz bass was just kind of old it wasn't classic <laughs> yeah and, all right and so a lot of these, you know, you bought them at pawn shops on tour, and just thankfully never got rid of a lot of those. So we wound up with some really good bases laying around, and and between the two of us, we kept collecting amps. Kind of like, uh, it's kind of the same thing, like you saying that there was a C12 on the bass amps, like you and you own a studio. You start thinking, wow, we should have a C12 around for bass. Amp. Yeah, <laughs> right. that kind of thing. I would, bump, I would. I would bump it, you know, Rebo would come in with like a black deluxe or something and really get a great sound from it because he's him. I mean, we all know that the guitar is the player, but but at the same time, that was the tool he chose to get there. And and I'm going, wow, that's a great, useful tool for a studio. I mean, this one's obvious saying a Fender deluxe. Yeah, the, yeah. It's like, you know, speakers in the studio. But the, uh, you know, so there was like, okay, let's get one of those. And I really, I love Princeton's. I'm kind of a Princeton freak. Yeah. So I have like every year of
0: Prince Daniel, <laughs> you know,
1: from like from like sixty on, you know, and and uh, it just kind of came together like that. It, it was everything was in the service of a particular vision rather than gear for gear's sake, you know. It was definitely again like things that I loved the sound of it, and then I'd go, "Wow, okay, that thingy was used for this," and I see why. This is so great. You know what it is? It's talking to people. I went to racing school for motorcycles at one point in my life. And it's trying to talk to people, like talking about different compressors, different mic pres, different amps, right? It's like talking about different tire formulations. Like if you're not moving quick enough that you sense what they do at the edge of adhesion, you never get a feel for why it's fucking great in one circumstance and maybe not so great in another, so running things right up to the edge and figuring out what they do under duress, that's why a 1073 does what it does versus a 1081,
0: yeah.
1: you know, or, or a, a, a tweed champ versus a blackface champ with a, you know, with a different speaker in it or something like that. It's It's these things when they're getting smacked around a little bit, they just, they reveal their character in a way that always intrigued me. Again, it's where the sort of, the, the the original gesture is either sort of exalted or stomped on by the thing you're using to get that gesture into the world and and there's things that seem to sort of exalt what rebo was doing holding it up and kind of giving it a you know even more life where we could hear it correctly because his gestures worked with that particular amp at that volume that wattage worked at that volume you know what i mean it's yeah. it's where it's it's when the it's when the thing meets the the sentiment and the gesture and we find ourselves kind of idiomatically responding to the idiom of like the 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 verb turned all the way up on a fender deluxe like that carries an idiom for all of us it might be personal and different for everybody but it certainly carries a particular spirit and and i loved that and and the amps became those colors on that palette for me
0: that's so cool would you have a favorite
1: desert island would be a a 65 Princeton Reverb, mm. the Blackface, Blackface Princeton Reverb. I, I think I could probably do any record with that. I like the tone of the brown quite a bit, but it doesn't have verb. Yeah, <laughs> you know? <It> just doesn't <laughs> yeah. And tremolo only goes so far. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, you've done such a wide variety of artists, different genres. Do you approach them all the same?
1: oh yeah basically i mean i'm definitely always me but there's a bit of method acting like meaning i'm if if i'm producing it's different than i'm engineering too you know or or both so in the sense that if you know i'm not going to suggest a a a melotron solo on the metal record or whatever you know i mean there's there's things that are genre specific but but for sure i would say that most of all i mean you know man you've done some amazing shit that creating a, a an environment where the people can do their best i mean this gets so oprah slash yoda but creating an environment where people feel like you what they're doing matters to the world has been more important than what kick mic i used whether you know if it's a rock record or a jazz thing it's like people going out into the live room after i've put together something that sounds really good you know in the time that from the time the drummer's butt comes off the stool to the time they're standing with me you know, in front of the monitors, it needs to sound like something. And so putting things together while they're playing and kind of getting a running mix happening, and then they go back into the room for take two feeling like fucking heroes, like that made more of a difference every single time than whether when they got back in there, they played jazz, rock or, or hip hop, you know, or funk or whatever. It's like for sure, there is there was an energetic thread through every single session for me. So it's kind of the same thing, and then there's very few things that that are genre specific. Like I say, that it's it's just more what we'll what the genre will tolerate. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like okay, how far can we take this, and and is it an informed departure that makes it unique and cool, or is it just stupid, and I'm I'm misinformed about what's okay for this metal record. You know, would it be would it be the coolest new metal record because there was a mellotron solo, or would it just be kind of a dumb hybrid that nobody wants to hear? You know, it's a fine it line. Become strawberry fields. It is a fine line. Yeah. But, it's, but that's why it's context driven, and so it's hard to answer that. I I would come at it with the same open heart, and ultimately have to decide in the moment whether it was dumb or brilliant. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I get it. Because
1: that's a fine line as well.
0: Nixon question for you. And I think I know yeah. the answer just from our conversation so far. When you're mixing, are you using a lot of compression?
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> but not. But but it depends whether it's a lot, meaning many doing very little. Yes, sometimes, or a few doing a lot. Yeah, sometimes, you know, on a mono room mic, maybe there's a single compressor pulling back a lot and freaking out. But then on a main vocal, there's five compressors, two in parallel, three serial in a row or like on the insert and the tape out or whatever. And they're not doing very much each, even if the total amount of gain reduction is 10 dB. It's like two each across five devices or something. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's whether we're trying to like blow it up or shellac it, you know, we need to do a bunch of little layers to get it to be really shiny or we can just swing a fucking sledgehammer at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make a big difference. Make a big difference pretty quickly in the tone. Yeah, you know. So, about, but yes, definitely using a lot of different devices for compression. How about bus compression? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, I went through like a I have to have nine hundred things down to the right going on phase, and kind of backed off of that madness. And I, because I kind of figured out what I was leaning on the most. And it was really kind of like a drum bus compressor and maybe like a, a vocal, maybe a couple vocal buses and one bass thing is rare, but I've, I'll do it sometimes. It's mostly because I have this compressor that distorts a lot. And so if there's something that needs, needs to sound a bit more B-15-y on the DI or something that's been submitted to me, this compressor kind of sounds B-15-ish it's more as kind of like a what people would imagine a culture vulture doing or Mm. something along those lines you know but in parallel though so i'm not just beating the crap out of it at the channel how much are you doing in the box quite a bit quite a bit i mean as far as i've got in in the a room i have 48 48 channel ssl without going to the mini faders for returns and and I'll, I'll stem down, you know, if there's 22 guitar tracks or something, I'll bring those out of just a couple pairs of faders and then put some processing on an aux that becomes my out to the console. A lot of times I'll use an aux to trim the out to a stereo pair on the SSL instead of just loading up a gajillion dB of guitars. You know, after 20 tracks of it recorded hot, it's just the SSL doesn't want to see all that coming out of a Burl converter um so I'll trim it down and have a couple plugs possibly on the ox on its way out like slow it down with some in the box compressor or or a tweakier EQ than you know if it's coming out through a pair of 1073s but I'm in the box kind of notching with a UAD Oxford thing or you know something more tweaky notchy like that and usually doing Trying to use what's great about digital, which is something like an Oxford that I can use a graphical interface, find the annoying frequencies, pull it down, um, and or a phase linear EQ, things like that. Whereas then I, I, I then kind of treat it like it was recorded that way. I don't keep going back to that aux out. I then treat it like, okay, now we're back out in the analog domain and I deal with that signal I've created with plugins coming out like it's coming off a tape machine. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 I got you.
0: Do you have a favorite plugin that you find yourself using all the time?
1: I like, I really like the, uh, <laughs> I like the Massey compressor yeah. a lot, the CT5. I use that all the time. I use the, I use UA primarily for the EQs. I use the 1073 plugin a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that one because it's, it's not that the something that always drove me nuts about digital stuff about plugins in general was that there's zero point when the instance is initiated on the channel was doing nothing and i've never fucking patched anything in my rack that did zero before i started touching the knobs yeah. so there was never that chance of like a happy setting from the last session type of thing on an 1176 you know those old stories where it was like we had it set for bass and then put it on the overheads, and it was crazy. Yeah. That became, you know, Abbey Road you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like that type of shit. It doesn't happen when, you're, when your fucking plugin comes up doing nothing until you start messing with it. And I love the fact that there's like the, the line amp is modeled, and, you know, it's component-level modeling with that stuff. So you wind up with an actual change in timbre immediately that's amplitude-dependent, just like a piece of analog gear. That, I love that. So I use that one quite a bit.
0: Have you tried the uh, BX console from Plugin Alliance?
1: I haven't. I know what it is, yeah. I, I like the BX stuff a lot.
0: But what's interesting about the BX console, is, well, they, they have at least two different models, one on uh, uh, Neve and another in SSL. And yeah. every time you put one in, it sounds different. So in other words, yeah. the owner has a Neve himself, and he noticed that every single channel sounds different. And it's like, well, that wait a like- second. If I have plugins that all sound the same, that's why I'm not getting the analog sound. So sure. when you actually put it in, every single instance sounds different as it would on a console, which is a great concept. That's pretty- yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's-
1: yeah, it's fun. It's a fun concept. The thing that's funny, though, is, is that there's this inherent notion that analog has to be random non-repeatable and sort of failing to be funky you know or to mm. be cool yeah it, the same way that there's sort of like tape emulation plugins where the reels have like barnacles on them and shit and <laughs> like they came out <laughs> of the bottom of a boat you know it's like you know a properly aligned 827 is at 30 ips doesn't have a bunch of sound you know a bunch of noise and a bunch of shit happening and and so i do it's why i like things that you can you can do interesting colors with them, but they're not necessarily meant to be broken. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I I I like, or I like things that are deliberately kind of broken sounding, but it's, it's interesting to me when there's that sort of that happenstance is it's attractive to me in that case, that an instance would sound slightly different from channel to channel. And that's, that's clever and brilliant, but it is funny to me that we get into these things where you know, like the, after you do the modeling of an SSL channel or something, they're they're. It's not like it's fucking broken. It's still like pretty high five. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. No, something like inherently warm till you like turn down the fifteen k. You know.
0: You know, it's funny. I always felt the same way. It's like on those saturation plugins. It's like I don't know. I you know I don't remember it quite sounding like this. <laughs> you know, they're, they're exactly. all all a little little too heavy handed for me. And it's like, well, yeah being like that myself.
1: Like it was an MCI, not a rat pedal. Yeah. I mean? <laughs> like 15 Ips doesn't immediately turn into a fucking big muff, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Joel, what's your favorite thing to do?
1: In life? Record. In music. <laughs> in music. Mm, man. I think I've really I fell in love with doing records that I identified this year I have two Grammy nominations for something that's called electronic
0: congratulations right? awesome and
1: thank you man and so I had gone to the Grammys before with something called electronic and I went to the Grammys two other times with something called rock yeah. right and what's interesting is is that I I went to the edges of engineering and back on the things called electronics it sort of elicits this idea that we had a bunch of fucking like wires and we were all in the control room and it was sort of like we were hitting buttons or something. When you tell people you worked on an electronic record and what I was doing was actually tracking live funk bands straight to analog two track that was then cut to vinyl to lacquer so that the guy could go home, sample from the lacquers, bring it into Ableton, create the arrangements in Ableton and then FTP back, The stems from that the the multi-track from that to have me mix it analog again and wow if you hear if you hear like a crystal echoes on the h3000 like coming up on the eighth beat you know the set the four of the second measure of the drum phrase that was me playing the console live because it's just going to two track and there's you know 12 people like horns everybody's going live and that's electronic like these guys don't have any of the genre constraints that making a rock record was basically like finding a way to do something interesting within very a very tiny hallway that on your left is like active rock and on your right is metal and we're trying to stay in this alternative zone and the way the radio guy is going to market it requires that the solo can't be more than eight bars and you know the shit there the way yeah the way rock interfaces with the commerce end of what we do is so fucking specific as opposed to electronic where I'm recording like a Ganawa group on one day, a guy, you know, singing at the same time as a, a, a hundred year old Bosendorfer piano, you know, and, and half of it is supposed to sound like it's from 1984. Half of it's supposed to sound like it's from 1972 very specific kind of markers of when things got cleaner in the disco era versus the again, versus like the metersy kind of grit and, you know, being super hyper aware of like these three year differences, like this should sound more 1971, 1970 electric prunes, David Axelrod. And this should be, you know, an obscure, you know, a, a chocolate milk record that Alan Toussaint did in 75, you know, like the texturally, And so we're using completely different techniques. And I mean, you have to be more of a method actor at that point to get the cartoon of the spirit of an era to come through the speakers. And that interests me. That's my favorite thing to do is use all the creativity and experimentation that we discussed in the beginning of this conversation to bring it to bear on how do I trick Pro Tools into sounding like, you know, an Ampex 440 being tracked in a shag carpeted room in New Orleans <laughs> yeah, in 1975. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like at 15 ips with a couple mics and some good shit or whatever, but it's like you, you start doing crazy shit to make that sound happen. And even if you're off a little bit with the mid range texture, it's like the tip of the hat is always going to be there. Like if you can get that DNA right then people understand what it, you know, what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And I mean, that's my favorite is it, like the creativity in the studio outside of the genre constraints is is my favorite thing to do and to make it resonate with a lot of listeners it's not just for the art you know the the experimentation itself we, we want to make some great music out of all of these techniques it's almost like the way dub happened like really playing the studio but to make people dance like it you know the the idea wasn't because the guy wanted to fuck with the fader it was like he was using fader to to make the song engage a crowd differently than the original so it's kind of the original remix artist there with dub stuff it's the same thing for me with these the guys that i've been working with that are called electronic just because they kind of edit a lot after we track live sounds you know it's really that stuff is so inspiring
0: sounds like a huge amount of fun
1: it's a huge amount of fun man that's why i hope i keep getting to do it (laughs) (laughs) well
0: the couple couple grammy nominations i think there's probably a good chance that'll happen, I would say. Hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully.
1: That and 275 will get me on the subway.
0: <laughs> okay, last question, Joel. You've been in the business for a long time, and it means that you're in the business. So what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way, or maybe someone imparted to you?
1: Something that I've learned, first and foremost, is that is that, dude, I don't know has eaten more budgets. You know, second-guessing every creative fucking move in a studio has has cost record labels, engineers, producers, bands more money than any console you've ever seen. Definitely. Think about the number of times that somebody said, dude, I don't know, and you had to backtrack, and everybody's doubting themselves. You know, like, doubt has cost more than all the Neve consoles ever made. Doubt has cost more than all those C twelves ever made. Doubt, you know. Yeah. And and the thing that I recognized was that we can do something and we can do something else, but we can't do nothing. We just can't do nothing in the studio. And and I would say learning that kind of like with oil paint, like it doesn't set until you leave it for quite some time. You know, it's like we're not done until we're done, man. So track the fucking idea the song's three and a half minutes and you want to talk about it for 40. (laughs) you know you want to talk about the whirly overdub for 40 minutes that would have taken three and a half yeah yeah to do just to do it you know what i mean and so for me it's like do the thing be definitive you know make decisions commit to sounds all my favorite records had commitment in them you know it's like uh, all of them and, and and people drive long distances and pay great sums of money to be in the presence of confidence and i think that that reads in a record like in the production style in the way that people deliver the message on a microphone they can it's it's like you you sense that yeah can yeah, you yeah. imagine like would you ever would you have ever picked the take where it's like uh i might rock now uh, you know? yeah right it's, it's not about that you know what i'm saying yeah and and so to me, it's like being definitive actually is compassion. It's not ruling with an iron fist in the studio. It's having compassion for more things than just the feelings of the guy who suggested it. It's like, you know, that you're draining, you know, the meter's running and we're draining the resources and what's available to us with every minute that I don't say yes or no as the producer. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I and do. you wind up you wind up being able to spend more time on what matters to the fucking song and ultimately to the album. If you make those decisions quickly, you might realize that the decision was wrong. And if you get your ego out of the way, you track over it. Yeah, you got yeah. a bunch of tracks and Pro Tools, man. Delete it or mute it, and and admit that it's not the way to go, or do something else. But don't do nothing. Yeah, don't just stare at each other for forty minutes over a three and a half minute song.
0: That's excellent. I don't ever remember anyone saying anything about being in the presence of confidence. That's brilliant.
1: I mean, that's what we read. I That's what we read when it's Aaron Neville singing a vocal or Nora Jones. People have gotten to record that are known. I mean, I seem to be creating an entire career arc for myself or career trajectory for myself for like Singing horribly at famous singers, (laughs) like being a total dupe like. Oh, I love it when you go to (laughs) Iron. Why are you doing this? Man, you know, thinking as my mouth does it, and at the same time though, it winds up creating an environment where there's enthusiasm for what they're doing, and then confidence comes down the wires, and it is the fucking take. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we wind up with is something of value. You know, we read each other. I use the example of my daughter who's eight years old. It's like even just you and I, if we were walking down the street in Brooklyn or me and my friends are walking down the street here in Brooklyn and somebody kind of like starts looking slightly straight ahead or whatever, you know, there's like some sketchy guy or there's some reason that we should all kind of pay attention. We read each other as animals and it's the tone of my voice. It's everything like the muscle, you know, the muscles in my throat. And so when you hear somebody actually come out of microphone with confidence, we read that immediately. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just subconscious. We would read that, and it's I got the idea when, when my daughter, it's like she's made of the same stuff. So we can read each other really well, and and but that that happens in a more subtle fashion, even between strangers at a distance, through speakers. Sure. You know,
0: that's brilliant, Joel.
1: And that became important to me.
0: I think it's important to everybody to just realize that. That's excellent. I have to remember that because it's words of wisdom for sure. To find out more about Joel, go to joelhamilton, one word, joelhamilton.net, and studiogbrooklyn, all one word, .com, com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownerscircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownerscircle.com, you also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. Have a great 2018. I will see you next time.